Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Tata. What you're about to hear is a session from day one of Jaipur Lit Fest 2023. And it's called Fallen Idols, the Age of Iconoclasm. Alex Von Tunzelman and David Olusoga in conversation with Mukulika Banerjee. <laughs> of 2020, what began as a protest in the United States against contemporary racism very quickly, and I think quite surprisingly, became a debate about history, and in that debate, statues inevitably became targets. It began in America with the removal or the pulling down, in some cases, of Confederate statues, and then that storm of protest crossed the Atlantic, and land made landfall in Britain, the city I live in, in Bristol. A statue of a slave trader called Edward Colston was toppled, and it was part of a, a wave that rumbled around the world. There were statues removed in Australia, in, in Belgium, in France, in Germany, uh, in the Caribbean. And I think it was because in this moment when particularly imperial colonial histories were being reassessed, and at this moment when the history of racial violence was in our face with the shocking images of the murder of George Floyd, suddenly we, we, could, we could see these statues, which had always been there, we could see them in a new light. Thank you. Um, Alex, you've written a book called Fallen Idols. You've looked at statue making across the world. So this is not just a Euro-America story, is it? No, absolutely not. And I think, you know, we need to sort of start with the origin of these statues that people are reacting against. There have been various points in history where lots of statues have been put up. Ancient Greece uh, being one of them, um, <laughs> France before the revolution. And there's often a reaction against that, and this is what's happening now. So these statues largely went up um, from the mid-19th century to the early 20th century, during a period where it was actually called statue mania. So many statues were being put up that the artist Edgar Degas in France said, one has to put barbed wire around public gardens to stop sculptors from depositing their works therein, you know, as if they were dogs that were depositing something else. Um, and this was sort of a, a, a reaction to, I think, in the mid-19th century, what was called the great man theory of history. This was popularized by the British writer Thomas Carlyle. The idea that history was just about great men doing great things. And they were all men in his thesis. One of them was not a white man, was the Prophet Muhammad. Other than that, they were all white men. And statues really reflect that history. When you see, you know, if you look in sort of Paris and London in the mid-19th century, they had sort of a dozen statues. By World War I, they both had kind of two or three hundred statues. So, you know, really this mania was huge. Um, so really it was about that. It was about promoting this idea that history is made by great men. That was very much, and that's why in my book, all the statues I look at are statues of men. Um, because that is what statues are in our modern period. They're, they're very much a reflection of that world. Mm. So, David, what were these statues trying, what, what was being tried to be achieved by putting up these statues? What are statues for in public consumption? 
Well, I think what's interesting to think about what statues aren't and what the claims of them has been made recently. What they certainly aren't is a mechanism through which we learn history. Bigger statues are incapable of teaching us history because history is fluid and mobile and it's open to reinterpretation. And statues are literally set in stone. They cannot move, they cannot adapt. Also, they were never intended to teach us our history. That was never their function. They were not just statues of great men, they were very often put up by aspiring great men who were thinking as much about their career and associating themselves with these figures from the past and what it could do for them as they were about the figures from the past. So these statues were an elite reflecting other members of that elite as a way of entrenching power. They were never intended to teach history and they were never intended to be anything other than a representation of that elite. Now, one of the ways that that was disguised or camouflaged is that many statues in many countries, if you look at the dedication on the pedestal, it will claim that it was erected by public subscription. It will imply that the entire city put their hands in their pockets and put in some pennies or some kopecks or some francs in order to erect this statue. And that is almost always untrue. The money almost always came from that tiny elite. Sometimes it came from one individual. So I think we need to think about what statues did for the people who put them up and how small that elite was, as well as the, of the people that those statues depict. So we are in Jaipur, in India, where there is a, a colonial story of statues and then there's a contemporary story of statues. So did statue mania reach India in the 19th century? Yes, it absolutely did. So, um, obviously in India, there's a very ancient tradition of statuary, which is religious, um, but not so much of an ancient tradition of statuary that is secular, which is what was going on here. So, the British started to put up statues in the 19th century, largely, um, mostly of people like Robert Clive, who perhaps the British thought was a lot more heroic than a lot of Indians would have thought at the time. Um, and after 1857, though, the British realized they needed to start also putting up statues of some Indians. So they started to put up things like a statue, two statues actually, in what was then Bombay of David Sassoon, for instance, or they had um, a statue in Calcutta of the editor of the Hindu Patriot newspaper. So there were also statues that they were putting up of Indians. But all of these were really about serving this colonial system you know, of making some, uh, uh, making it appear that Indians were part of this system and it was all one big happy empire and going marvelously. Um, however, we know that there was a reaction against them from quite early on. So for instance, in 1876, the big statue of Queen Victoria in Bombay was vandalized. Two brothers broke up to it and they poured tar all over it and broke its nose off, which was a very common form of um, protest against statues. Uh, and it was actually really hard to get the tar off. They had to um, get a professor from Surat, I think, had to come up with a special mechanism. It took them ages to get it off. And then the British passed a law that all statues must be kept spotlessly clean. So there were actually uh, men in Bombay whose job it was to go and shampoo the pigeon droppings off Queen Victoria's head. Um, you know, because you couldn't have any disrespect to these statues. But actually it was, you know, they were very commonly vandalized and often with this method of tar and breaking. Although I do think that's partly to do with often the statues of Queen Victoria were vandalized, and I think we must think about physics. So Queen Victoria, of course, is sort of this shape, like a pyramid, um, small head at the top, great big skirts, possibly sitting down. It's the hardest shape to knock over. So it's very hard to topple the statue, but you can pour tar over it just as easily. And of course, the, the contemporary Indian story of statues, as the famously the world's tallest statue now stands in Gujarat, 
of uh, Sardar Patel, uh, put up by the current Indian government. Patel wasn't a fan of statues himself, was he? No, he was not. Um, after independence, obviously, the question came up of should we remove the British statues? And actually, Nehru and Patel were completely united in thinking this was totally pointless. Um, I mean, Patel said in, in 1949, the uh, state government of Bombay, as it was still then called, you know, said they wanted to pull down statues. And he said, you know, why are they bothering about this pointless issue of monuments at a time when we're trying to do so much and establish this new state? Um, so, you know, he was just very vexed by it and very annoyed. And, and Nehru was very much against this idea that you would commemorate living figures particularly and you know again he said you know in India we have this tradition of religious statuary but not this secular tradition and he was worried really that what would happen is the British statues would be pulled down and then Indian politicians would start putting up statues of themselves and I think we can see in time that in fact this was not a completely misplaced fear. Yeah. And of course I mean it, we must mention that another thing that's happened recently in India is statues of Nathuram Godse, uh, Gandhi's assassin has been put up and worshipped precisely in that moment. You're a, a, a person, a human being, then worshipped and garlanded as a hero, uh, which is exactly what statues have the potential uh, to become, but have had very diff different trajectories. But as, um, as pieces of public art, how would you rate them, David? I mean, I, I, try, I tend to use a technical word here. Um, most statues are naff. They're, they're, they're awful works of art. Um, most of them don't even qualify as art. Um, and it's very notable when statues are removed that almost no one has the nerve to suggest you're removing art or you're destroying art because they are so manifestly awful. And I think there's, 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 more, there's more to it than that. It's Heroic statuary of individuals mm. is about power. It is about freezing history. It's making one statement. It's about removing nuance. It has so many functions that artistic values are very much low down the agenda. The other thing about them is they don't work. On their own principles, given what they claim to do, they don't function. They're inoperable. Most of us don't notice statues. I mean, here there's a very good British example, a, a quite famous example of Trafalgar Square. Um, there are seven statues in Trafalgar Square. One of them is very famous, the statue of Lord Nelson on a 60-meter pillar. It's hard to miss. But the six others, almost nobody in Britain or any other country could name the other six. Now, we are told statues tell us our history. We're told that they are these incredibly eloquent objects, and we just, just by walking past them, you imbibe all this knowledge. It, that demonstrably doesn't work because we can't even name them. Whenever people talk about removing statues, people have to Google them to see who they were and what they did to then get offended. People have to spend do some research in order to be upset by them because they don't function. They do not help us to remember people from the past. So on their own terms, what people claim they do, they are... They're, they're mute, they're, they're terrible objects, terrible works of art, and they're just quite boring. And very often also, they're removed for the most mundane reasons. The biggest disaster for the world's uh, fleets of statues was the coming of the motor car, the widening of roads, the simplification of junctions. That's when many statues were removed. Or they were removed because no one could remember who that bloke is. 
they just became so forgettable. The vaults of museums all over the world are full of third-rate statues of third-rate historical figures that no one cares about. But suddenly, in the 21st century, they have become these, these objects that must be protected and revered and, and, and preserved. We've never had this attitude towards them before. And furthermore, we know that when they are removed, it doesn't erase history. And the obvious example for that, of course, is Germany, that after World War II, by law, all Nazi statuary and all images of the swastika were removed. You can't display them anymore at all. And yet that history is very meaningfully remembered in Germany because they have a proper program of public education, lifelong education, museums, schools, every level. That is how you remember history. You don't need to leave up statues of Hitler to remember that past. Now, two things that can be said, perhaps slightly to push back against both your arguments. One is, you know, just down the road from Trafalgar Square, of course, is Parliament Square, where uh, just a few years ago, 10 years ago, a statue of Gandhi was erected, right? And it was the placement of the statue, the fact that it was uh, much smaller and less expensive, not on a pedestal, uh, but faced Churchill and Smuts was of enormous significance, not just to Indians, but also to the post-colonial world. So sometimes, maybe, you get um, statues actually meaning something, right? I think they mean something to some people who choose to care about them. But I, again, I think if you ask most people in Britain to name half the statues yeah. in Parliament Square, they wouldn't be able to, and they wouldn't know that Gandhi was there. I, I teach at Manchester, we have a statue of Abraham Lincoln because of the support of some people in Manchester for the North during the American Civil War, an astonishing moment in British and American history. Most people don't notice that that statue's there, and if they do notice it, they don't understand the history that explains it. So again, as a mechanism of transmission of historical knowledge, it doesn't really function. We learn history, as Alex said, through reading books, watching television programs, attending wonderful festivals such as this. Statues as educators really don't, don't function. And actually, I have to add on the Abraham Lincoln statue in Manchester, the reason you have it, in fact, is not because of Manchester's spontaneous support for the cotton trade, but it was made by an American uh, magnate, and he wanted to put it in London. He wanted it in Parliament Square. But Abraham Lincoln's son was then living in Britain, and he hated that statue. He said, it's so ugly, it looks like a tramp with colic. Um, so, in fact, he refused to let it be put up in London, and people in London were saying this will actually damage British-American relations because it's so hideous. So they had to find somewhere to dump it, so they came up with this Manchester idea. <laughs> so actually, you know, often the kind of the path to these statues uh, ending up where they are is not necessarily smooth. But, okay, so you can't erase history by pulling down statues or putting them up, you can't teach, but the whole... The, the pulling down of Colston's statue, which you wrote so eloquently about, David, uh, was precisely to do that, to, to remove any trace of a person who stood in public, who many Bristolians didn't even know uh, who he was or what his past was, but it was important uh, to, for that not to be there where it was. But what people know less about is that erasure was the last resort, wasn't it? There was a process by which a more nuanced history was attempted. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol, I think, is 
a fascinating example of what statues are and what they're not. Um, it was erected in 1895. Edward Colston, a 17th century slave trader, died in 1721. It has very little to do with his life and everything to do with the elite of that city at that moment in the middle of statue mania, wanting to find a hero from its past. It was, by the middle of the 19th, 20th century, seen as controversial. This is a man involved in the Atlantic slave trade who was um, complicit in the enslaving of 84,000 human beings and the death of 15,000. Um, and the campaign ran for decades to have that statue removed. It was intermittent. It was often small-scale petitions, often led by students. But it was reaching something like a, a, a peak of activity um, just before the statue was toppled with an attempt to do what what people often say we should do with statues, which is contextualize them. So the campaign was to put a plaque on the statue explaining who he was, that his money came, very, very much of it, from the Atlantic slave trade, but also doing something that statues, again, almost never do, which is acknowledge the existence of the victims. Victims are almost always invisible in statutory. The defenders of that statue were unwilling to allow even that act of contextualization. So the, the toppling of that statue in the summer of 2020 was, as you say, it was, the, it was the apotheosis, or in some ways the perversion, of a long process of negotiation and debate to have that statue removed, put in a museum, or contextualized that had been very strongly resisted by the same elite that put the statue up there in the 19th century. Um, but again, are saying statues aren't what they think they are. The statue claimed that it was erected by public subscription. We know that wasn't true. It claimed Colston was a great and wondrous, uh, he was a virtuous son of the city. He was from the city, but he lived in London. And virtuous, he was a slave trader. So it was full of dishonesty. The statue as it is now, toppled in the summer of 2020, now in a museum, covered in graffiti, it's now a very honest object. It now says something much, much more interesting. It is the perfect object to say, here is a country, the United Kingdom, struggling to come to terms with certain aspects of its history. It is now a much, much more valuable object, not just, I think, uh, emotionally and historically, but literally. One of the lines of defense in the trial of the four kids who pulled down that statue was the, the prosecution had to prove, in order to sustain a charge of criminal damage, that the value of the object had been reduced. And so the defense went to experts, to, uh, to art auctioneers, and asked how much the statue was worth now, having been toppled. And it was worth 13 times as much as it had been previously, because it was now globally famous. It now had something to say. It now had a real, honest story to tell. So the, the object had been enhanced in value, not, not damaged. Because statues can be repurposed. They can be made honest. So if statues are not the way to go, what are the other ways? I mean, India had its own experiment at independence. Uh, they were all consigned to Coronation Park in Delhi, uh, where a bunch of colonial statues stand on their own in a very poignant cluster of statues, and you can visit it there. Um, and of course, road names are, are important in India for sure, especially the capital, Delhi. Uh, yes, all cities in India pretty much have a Gandhi Mark and a Nehru Stadium or, you know, they're named after the great nationalist leaders. But roads in New Delhi in the capital are named after forgotten film uh, freedom fighters. You know, they were named so that people would remember. But if you ask most uh, Delhites um, who these people were, I, I don't think they would be able to tell you. So in the public sphere, 
how does one remember history, I suppose, in an age of iconoclasm? Well, I mean, there's so many other ways. And yes, again, Nehru was very opposed to the renaming of roads as well. He said, one day in India, everyone's going to wake up and every single person is going to live on like Gandhi Street, Gandhi Nagar. You know, and this is just too confusing. And he was very resistant to having anything named after himself. Um, but, you know, now everywhere in India has a JN Mark and an MG Mark. So clearly, again, that just didn't work. But I mean, there are loads of other ways we remember our history. I mean, absolutely, you know, David has mentioned, you know, books, documentaries, and festivals like today, you know, and these are interactive ways we can remember history. So they're much more exciting and much more alive. You know, museums, schools, through art, through fiction as well, of course. So, you know, there's plenty of wonderful historical novels being talked about during this festival. There are so many ways we can interact with history. And also there are ways of making monuments that are not statues. You know, I mean, and I think, the point about statues, as I say, is that they really, you know, they vest all of history in great men. And that's sort of a problem for how we view history, because actually the reason the great man theory of history has fallen out of fashion is it's not very good, you know, because actually history isn't just made by these great men at the top. We now know that history is, like subaltern studies in India has really, you know, been at the forefront of this, but we know that history is also made by women, by, you know, by the servants, by everybody, by people in an army, by absolutely every level of society has some role in the making of history. So it's inefficient, you know, a statue is just insufficient to tell us this history. Whereas actually other forms of memorial can be much more moving. And in this regard, we can look at, for instance, war memorials um, are often deeply moving because they commemorate, you know, a whole community rather than just one person. But we can also look at some memorials. I mean, I'll give you an example from Budapest, which I think is amazing, is the Danube shoes. So on the banks of the river Danube, just outside the parliament building is an area where in World War II, Jews were made to take off their shoes and they were shot and thrown in the Danube River. And now they have bronze life-size shoes down the bank of the river as a memorial. And it is so moving when you see it because it's life-size. So suddenly you are brought into this historical event and you feel yourself almost a participant. You know, rather than this didactic thing on a pedestal, it brings you right into the moment. And I feel that memorial is much more effective than another statue would have been, even of some very worthy person. You know, as I say, it brings you into history. So actually, you know, we have brilliant artists in this world. We can do better than more statues. David, did you want to comment on that? Well, again, I would say that the naming of streets often just doesn't work as a way of remembering history. Uh, to use, again, another British example, one of the most common street names in Britain is Alma. Alma Road, Alma Street, there are literally hundreds of them. Um, I used to live on one, and I was always asked people, why, why, where's this word come from? And I'd never met even my neighbours on Alma Road who could ever tell me why the street was named. It was named after a battle in the Crimean War that everybody has forgotten. And it happened that the great building boom in, the, in Britain, in the Victorian era, happened to coincide with, the, with the, the Crimean War. So there were streets named after the generals and the battles of that war, about which people know very, very little. So as a, again, as a mechanism of remembrance, it doesn't work. But I think there is something, there's something different and where I do favor renaming. Our ancestors made mistakes. Sometimes they're venerated. And remember, we name a street in honor of somebody, not to remember them, but in honor. Sometimes our ancestors wanted to honor dishonorable men. In Germany and Berlin at the moment, there's the removal of statues of colonial generals and explorers who were involved in some cases in literal genocide in Namibia and what is now Tanzania. Um, I don't think we should honor men who committed war crimes. And I, 
don't think that's a very controversial idea. But if you believe that everything our ancestors did was right and sacred, then this rather uncontroversial idea of not celebrating men involved in genocide suddenly becomes controversial in a very strange and distorted way. And also telling the history, as, as you've been doing, the National Trust properties, to actually tell that honest history to anyone comes to visit. Because a lot of this, I and mean, this is the problem with, with Britain, is it's never really come to terms with how it's going to talk about the empire for the new generations. You have, I teach in a university every year, students arrive not having the slightest clue about their own history. Right? So it's not about learning about other parts of the world, it's their own history. That I think that's true in France, I think it's true in Belgium, I think it's true in Germany and other um, former colonial powers. I think it's partly true in the United States. Um, but statues aren't going to help us. We're, we're trying to grapple with something really difficult, imagining history not as heritage and celebration, but as something very challenging. And people who are accustomed to history being something that it exists to make us feel good, history is a much more challenging, uh, much, much less comfortable arena. It's a very difficult, it's a big ask to ask people to renegotiate their relationship with history. And statues are just one of the many obstacles to, I think, a more mature relationship with the past. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Jepper Bites. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes. <laughs>